Straight from the Mayor's Mouth, with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council. Hello everyone and welcome to Straight from the Mayor's Mouth. Good morning there, Matt. How are you, mate? Good, thank you. How's the new name and new theme going? Are you getting any feedback on it? Oh, I'm liking it. Yes, absolutely. I think the uh, say that very official sort of feel about it. It's, um, I do love it, and I do know the fact that the people out there listening are enjoying it as well. So it's yeah. nice to hear. Well, we got more listeners last week than Excellent. normal, so oh, that's very I don't good. know whether there was something in particular that we spoke about that grabbed people's attention or they wanted to hear the new theme. <laughs> oh, I'd suggest it has to be the latter for sure. <laughs> <laughs> now, mate, let's uh, sort of jump in. It was very sad during the week uh, to hear of the passing of uh, one of Dubbo's great stalwarts in Brian Barnes, wasn't it? Well, a real stalwart of the Dubbo business community, I'd yes. say, but he's been an active contributor to the community for many years, so our condolences to the family. And Absolutely. Obviously, I, I know Brian and Brian's son, Anthony, quite well. Mm. I knew Brian quite well as well, but Anthony was a couple of years above me at school. I can't remember, might have only been one year, maybe I'm putting his age up a bit on him. Mm. But uh, yeah, look, it's always sad to see people at a funeral, but also gratifying when someone's contributed to the community as much as Brian did. Yes. And I think that was the, the significant thing to me, just thinking back and understanding the things, you know, a little bit about someone, but when you go to their funeral and you watch, a, in this case, a video mm. eulogy, which oh, is a, yes, a different yes. way of doing lovely, it, lovely. but just seeing some of that and just seeing about Brian. And one of the things that Anthony commented to me afterwards was that there are so many things in his life that he didn't realise replicated his dad's life Is that right? and yes. didn't think about that until he sat down to do the eulogy and went, wow, I've kind of followed in dad's footsteps in a whole yes, range of ways. Yes. Of course, they've got the Sports Power Centre there and some challenges coming up for Anthony there with Rebel Sports mm. opening across the road, literally Absolutely. across the road from literally, them. That's right, yes. Yeah, so yeah. anyway, our condolences to the family, but well done as well. Congratulations, Brian, on the great contribution yes. you made to Dubbo in a whole range of different areas. I agree. Now, mate, uh, during the week as well, you held one of the past, present and future leadership forums and luncheons. Now, this, I think, is a terrific idea. This is an opportunity here where you get some of the past councillors, uh, you get them all back together. Uh, it's a bit like uh, a road trip, out having a road trip of all the people back in, all the old ones back in together again. So um, I suppose a couple of quick little things. Uh, the, the point of the exercise, apart from obviously a social gathering to get everyone back together, but what was the main reason to bring everybody back in and who was there? Well, I had an idea from the amalgamation to when the new council came along and then after that, that we seemed to have a lot of talent in our community that we then ignored. And I remember when I was on council previously with the Dubbo City Council, there were people on that council that had a lot of experience. So mm. as a councillor and then as the mayor, I used to turn to some of those people for various bits of advice and just ask some things. And then there were people that used to be on council as well who I used to talk to and gain some advice from and it was nice to have that connection mm. because experience, you can't replace oh, experience. Absolutely, absolutely. And then when the amalgamation happened and then the new council was elected, I know I spoke to a few other former councillors and it felt like all this knowledge, all this experience had been completely ignored mm. and one of the things, just a simple thing, one of the things we used to do on council is that Dubbo Day Awards held on the 23rd of November every year. For Dubbo Day, we would invite all former councillors along and hopefully you could make it along and then they'd hand out some of the Dubbo Day Awards. It was a nice way just to acknowledge a bit of that past there, but oh, even really. that got thrown out. So that's, that was gone. That, that was gone. Okay. So there was no recognition of those former councillors and I just mm. thought there seems to be so much knowledge and information there. So last year, 
I started the, what I call the inaugural past, right. present and future luncheon. It's a great name. And now it's the traditional past, present and future well, luncheon. Once you go past one, it becomes a tradition, doesn't <laughs> That's it? That's exactly right. right. And it really was that idea, every councillor for Wellington Shire Council, mm. Dubbo City Council, the Talbraga Shire oh, Council. Wait, we are and, going back a bit here. Then. That's right. Yeah, and yeah. the former Dubbo City Council that existed before the amalgamation yeah, in 1980 right. yes. and obviously Dubbo Regional Council. So basically everyone that's been involved in council. So, so if you're a councillor in any of those sort of uh, forums, you got an invite for the Correct. team. Excellent. And maybe we didn't get everyone the mm. first time because we might not have had all contact details for everyone, yes. but certainly we had a few that let us know that they didn't receive an invite. So we made sure that mm-hmm. we filled in those gaps and I'm pretty confident that everyone that's been mm. involved in the past got an invite for this one. Mm. And we end up with 22 people at a, a luncheon. Yeah, lovely. And part of it was, again, you've got these people who were passionate and still are passionate about their community, all yes. this experience, all this knowledge, and I looked around the room on the, the at the luncheon and I said, we've got maybe 250 years of mm. councillor experience in this room. Mm. For a start, let's take advantage of that. And we had five of our current councillors there at the luncheon so they can hear oh, nice. what the other people had to yeah. say. You've got that. But also these people are out there in the community. And one of the particular former councillors pulled out a sheet of paper and said, oh, I've been thinking about this lunch in the last couple of weeks. I've been talking to a few friends and here's a few ideas they've given me. And one of the things that I said when this particular person said that, was that these people are all out in the community still. Mm. You don't have to be a councillor mm. to have people that respect you, that yep. have people that So that's happy. an opinion, so that's, that's ideas, right. yes. Exactly right. So let's bring them all in together and yeah. see what we can get out of it. But we had people there from those various councils. They went back as far as, and they couldn't quite remember, but around 1976, 1977 wow. were okay. the first council experiences that we had there and so that was a game before that amalgamation with Talbragar Shire Mm. and then obviously people from Wellington Shire and Dubbo City Council and then Dubbo Regional Council but there were also people that had served on other councils so Berkshire and then they moved to Dubbo and then served on Dubbo and Warren Shire Council then again moved to Dubbo and served on Dubbo. So who were some of the the older names that were there? Well I'll run through the names so you get a bit of an idea so you had Mike Orgy, he's a Wellington Shire councillor. Right. Doug Butcherine, yes. Terry Dray, Evan Elliott, Dawn Fardell, David Grant, Dane Gumley, Bill Kelly, Paul Oxley, Greg Matthews, Richard Mutton, Kevin Parker, Sam Peacock, Brian Semler, Alan Smith, John Walkham, Kim Williams. And yes. then you had the councillors there, myself and Matt Wright and Kim Williams and Pam Wells and Vicky Etheridge. That's a great lineup. Well, it was, yeah, yeah. and it was a fascinating conversation. Yeah. A whole range of things were discussed and brought up and just some very specific issues, some mm. big picture issues. But I think the main thing was that, and I'm quite happy for the community. I mean, council paid for this lunch for all these people. I'm quite happy to put my hand up and say I authorised the payment of lunch for all these people. Mm. If for nothing else, than a mark of respect for the contribution that all these people have made oh, to where absolutely. we are today. Absolutely. And some of them might be critical of, of me. And again, it wasn't other councillors. This is purely my decision. The, the expenditure obviously wasn't very much. Mm. We're talking about lunch for 20 people. Mm. So there wasn't an, an no alcohol, of well, course. Let's so, just think about it for a sec. Like a lot of these guys, and still today, it's, it's a nominal figure that councillors get. And the opportunity to be respected again, to know the fact that what you did and what you contributed is still being respected today. And to have an opportunity for a lunch, I think it's a fabulous idea. So, yeah, I don't think there's any need for anyone to feel as though they need to justify, you know, to bring people in for a, who did some great contributions to our community to recognise them again. There's still great stalwarts of our community as well. And think about where we are today. Mm. You only get to where you are today by people in the past 
doing the various amounts of work that need to happen to get to where we are today. Now, and talk about payments, mm. there was some discussion there from some of the councillors. There were three that were on council back in the 70s, mm. and they weren't quite sure, but they thought it was about $2,000 a year they got paid. $2,000, yeah. there you now, go. Now, yeah. of course, we've discussed it only last week. It's going to go up to $26,000 yeah. from yeah. the 1st of July. Obviously, there's inflation in there as well. Yeah. But, yeah, it's not a lot of money. No, it's not. But, That's again, right. a lot of information, a lot of opinions, and hopefully, my intention is certainly, even when I'm gone, for this to be a traditional luncheon, that we just have that ability for these people to have some input. Yeah. And I took notes the whole time we were there. I probably wrote three pages of notes from different ideas that were thrown around and different things that were brought forward. Oh, wonderful. And it was also good for our... Well, listening through a few of those names, I'm sure there's still plenty that were offered an opinion to you. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Actually, one of, one of them turned up and they said, oh, you've allocated two hours for this lunch. Why two hours for this lunch? And I said... You got twenty or so people here that used to be on council. You don't reckon they're going to have a bit to say? <laughs> and it did go past the two hours. We I'm got sure to the two hour mark, yes, and a few yes. had to go back to their workplaces. But we kept going for a bit of time after that. And then even after that, there was a bit of time where some little groups of people that were on yes. council together yes. were catching up with people. Oh, so it's a great chance to catch up as well. Yeah, yeah. it was very nice. I notice here, Matt, um, a climate change and resilience committee was uh, something that you attended here during the week. So I always find these uh, these titles rather interesting because there's so many different groups in that. And so trying to get my head around exactly which group is which group, uh, each week some new group little pops up. And this is a new one for me, the Climate Change and Resilience Committee. Now, is this a local, is this part of the council organisation here in town? Is this, the, is this one of our groups or is this a, a broader group? This is one of our community consultative groups. When okay. we're reforming all these committees, we thought one around climate change and making us more resilient would be an important one to have. So is there any specific focus then that this group has? Surprisingly enough, climate change and <laughs> resilience. Apart from, <laughs> <laughs> apart from that, when you look back at that question, they're going to do it. But apart from the obvious, is there a specific focus that they look at here within uh, council structures? It really is looking at the future. And the different committees have different focus points. And there, mm. there are various terms of reference we have for all these different committees. Mm. But this one really is looking at what council can do for council, but also the community. So in other words, an organisation, any organisation out there might have their own climate change process to try and achieve net zero, for example, or look at what they can do as an organisation. But council has a, a dual role to play. First of all, as an organisation, as an organisation that employs 500 people, as right. an organisation that has turnover of a couple hundred million dollars a year, the any organisation should be mm. looking at what impact they're having on the environment, what that organisation can do. But with council, you've got that extra role of leading the community. Mm. So we may do things that may not return an exact benefit to the bottom line financially, mm. but are doing or, or it's doing something for the overall environment and doing something in a leadership perspective. I and mean, we've talked about some of those mm. things. I mean, mm. EVs is one of those classic yep. ones yep. where the, you've really got to play that role of leading the community. Mm. This particular one, a whole range of different issues were discussed at this latest committee meeting. And this is there has one got, particular thing that would sort of really sort of sort out to you from the discussions? Absolutely. There, there was one thing that I'll get to in a moment. But mm. remember, this has got some councillors on it. It's got mm. some council staff that are focusing in this particular division of council. Mm but also community members and obviously when you put your hand up to be a community member, you're not paid for it, yep. you've got to have a passion for it and there are so many different committees, you really want those people that are focused on it and passionate about mm. that area and we've definitely got that in this particular mm. scenario. One of the main points of discussion in this latest committee meeting 
was around our Wylandra Waste Depot, or okay. the tip, as most people yep. refer to yes. our yes. waste depots as. Now, we've got some things that occur there, and we take some waste from some other areas. So we take waste from Midwestern Regional Council. We take waste from Narromine, for example. Okay. And right. obviously, we've got our own waste there. Now, it's a huge facility, and I remember Stuart McLeod, who was a former director, when we were talking about this facility many years ago, mm talked about the lifetime of this facility being maybe 250 years, mm. which sounds unbelievable, the amount of space, the area we've got there. Yes. That's actually not true anymore. Oh, it okay. was true when Stuart said it right. because of the conditions that Has we the time had. frame decreased or? Decreased quite dramatically. Oh. And the reason that's happened is because when Stuart made those estimations, the rules or the laws as they were at the time meant that people came out and they brought their rubbish and we dumped it in landfill, and that was pretty much the end of it. Mm. That's being a, a little bit blasé about mm. it, and it's not quite accurate. There were some processes in place. But sure. in general, you brought it out, you dumped it in there. Yep. What we're at now is the EPA is telling all organisations, typically councils that run a tip, mm. they've got to get to a point where of all the rubbish that's brought out to a tip, only 20% of that can go into landfill. Wow. 80% that's need, a change. It is. Yeah, 80% yeah. Need, needs to be diverted to different areas. So to give you right. an example, yeah, yeah. when someone brings in concrete or oil or tyres or maybe even some solar panels, mm. all of this other rubbish needs to be diverted Does into... Does all that stuff have to be recycled or reused? Or? That's exactly the idea. So right. when we start to talk about this whole area as Stuart talked about, when it was yeah, yeah. going to be used mainly for landfill, we had that area there. But now we've got to try and keep it off into separate areas and mm. see what we can do with it. So tyres that are brought up, we need to keep a separate area for tyres. Mm. Or obviously asbestos is a separate issue again. Mm. That's not so much for recycling, it's for safety. Mm. But then you start to talk about these different areas. So concrete, how can we reuse concrete, for mm. example? Is, is there some way a we can do that? Actually, isn't it? A huge challenge, huge yeah, challenge. Yeah. Now we've been working away at this for some time okay. and we're getting there, we're getting up around the high 40, 40%, almost 50% okay. of what comes in now gets diverted rather yep. than put into landfill, but 50% isn't 80%, yeah. so we've still got a little and way to go. Quite often that's the hardest bit now to, to find something with, isn't it? Getting down to that last mm. part, that's exactly right. Mm. And so that's a challenge for us, but here's the other part of that challenge. When we start to talk about getting towards net zero again as an organisation, not as a city, but mm. getting down to net zero – then we have to look at where our greenhouse gas emissions come from. And we look mm. at all the various parts of council. The number one contributor, far and away number one contributor to our greenhouse gas emissions is from our tip. You're so kidding. about 62%. 62%? Of our greenhouse gas emissions come from the tip. Now, that's wow. a lot of that is methane. I would never have picked that. Exactly right. Most people don't think about that. Yeah, yeah. And that's mainly methane because methane is much worse as a greenhouse gas right. than CO2, for example. Yeah, yeah. So... Trying to reduce that means that the less we can put in a landfill, the further in front we are there. So for to a try start. to achieve a net zero figure, that's where the really the big focus needs to be, doesn't it? Exactly right. Mm. And one of the points of discussion from our last council meeting was the size of our red bin. There were mm. people in our community who said, "Our red bin, we've got a three bin. Our red bin isn't big enough." for all the rubbish from that household, in particular when you've got a few kids, for example, and mm. you've got a household that uses more stuff in general. Mm. So the red bin needs to be bigger. Well, I'm not saying it needs to be bigger. There were some people in the community who mm. said, sure. should the red bin be bigger? Now, we had that question come through at our last council meeting. The general logic was, well, to change the red bin size now would be very expensive. It would be counterproductive to what you're trying to achieve as well, isn't it? Like well, that's the second part of it. So the first yeah. part is... We're about halfway through a 10-year contract for yeah. the collection of our, of our 
waste our red bins. To then go and say to that particular waste provider that we're going mm. to change the size of a red bin to go to a larger bin, mm. well, they'd say, sure thing, but here's the new price of that mm. contract that you're now altering halfway through. So it would be expensive, but mm. you hit the nail on the head. The second part of it is it wouldn't really work if we're trying to reduce the amount of rubbish that goes yeah. into our landfill. But then you're encouraging people with bigger bins to put more stuff in. That doesn't really work. He hit the nail on the head. So mm. that wouldn't help us achieve our 80% target. It wouldn't help us achieve a reduction in our greenhouse gas emissions and it might be convenient for people. So what we really need to do is encourage people to use our green bin, to use our yellow bin, mm. and minimise that red bin. Make yeah. sure you put as little as possible into our red bin and see how much you can put into, mm. well, not how much you can put into, but how much you can not put into the red bin by using the other bin. So interesting discussion. But again, you don't know really all these different committees. You don't know what might be a topic of discussion and what might come out of this. Yep. One of the things as well is that we're going to do more education. We're doing a joint project where we've got a staff member that's shared amongst Mudgee, Dubbo and Narromine right. to do some more education around our FOGA, around our green bin. So food organics and garden organics, what can you put in there? What sort of things can you do with that? We want to get more into that, again, more mm. over our red bin, and that's about education. So we've actually got one person employed to do exactly that. So is there anything, uh, like from this, this committee meeting, uh, were there any recommendations that they're going to pass on now to council? Probably not so much recommendations per se from this one. Sometimes there are some recommendations mm. that might go. This one was really more about informing the committee where we're up to, okay. for example, with this education officer. So that's happening now as we speak. Mm. But also letting them know that we are going to bring to council a net zero strategy to mm. try and have that and have some targets in place, all that type of thing. So probably not so much recommendations out of that. It was really about here's some discussions around that and getting these people that are passionate in our community to understand and be aware of these things and also mm. just have some comments from those on some of these things that are happening. So fascinating and fascinating mm. so many different things that council's involved yeah, with. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I do like this one. The official opening of the Archibald Prize finalists. Now, um, this is a, it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Here we have this magnificent uh, facility here in Dubbo for the Western Plains Cultural Centre. And uh, every year now we, we get the Archibald Prize. The, the finalists all come along, including, I'd suggest, the, the, the winner. They all come here. And I think also, are we the last one on the list as well, Matt? Is that this, this how this works? We're, we're the last uh, time that this exhibition is being shown this year in this place? We're the, this is the 2022 finalists. So yes. these are all the finalists. Well, actually, not quite. I'll talk about that in a moment. But there, mm. were, there were, go back to 2022, you've got people who enter the Archibald, our best known and most prestigious and also richest Portraiture Prize, in fact, probably our richest art prize in general. $100,000 mm. goes to the winner. It's a good prize for an artist. Good prize. Mm. 816 entries were received oh, okay. by the trustees for the Archibald last year for 2022. Of those 816, they chose 52 that right. were worthy to be deemed finalists. Yes. And then, of course, from those 52, a winner is chosen. Do you know if anyone can put a, a, a portrait in? This is the great part about the Archibalds. It is open to yeah, anyone. Right. There's no criteria except it's got to be a portrait, obviously. Mm. That's part of the whole concept. Yep. And so it's it's really one of those things that it's open to any – and look, I'm sure there are conditions. I'm sure they've got to be an Australian. I'm yes, sure you, you yes. to put a, a portrait in, you've got to say, yes, I am Australian. Mm. It's not an international prize as far as I know, but 
you can it's a great thing anyone mm. can say I could win $100,000 if my art's good enough yeah. I could possibly win $100,000 yeah it's so, so you were at the opening there the other night and, yeah. and checked out was there a good crowd turn up it was actually a really good crowd and, yeah. and people know the Archibald we've got our Western Plains Cultural Centre it's one of the things that we have in our community I think that's very focused on our creative or artistic community mm. which is fantastic mm. love it mm. the Archibalds are something that people know yes. and it's one of the great yes. things that I do when I jump in taxis in Sydney and talk about why are you in Sydney still? You've got all these wonderful regional areas like Dubbo, for yes. example, to come and live in. Why are you still here? And we often have a bit of a discussion around the advantages of living in regional areas versus the non-advantages mm. of living in Sydney. Absolutely. Nice way of putting it. And I talk about sometimes different things you can see. And, of course, people in Sydney sometimes think if, you've got to, if you want to go to theatre or art, you've got to be in Sydney. Mm. And I often say to them, how many times have you seen the finalists from the Archibald and most people, most taxi drivers I talk to say, never. Mm. I say, well, I've seen it and I think this is the fourth exhibit we've had now in Dubbo mm. of all the finalists. 2017 was the last time we had it here. Mm. But I say, I've seen it approximately four times now I've seen this mm. one and I've seen all of those finalist groups in Dubbo, mm. not in Sydney. Mm. And so you start to just open the minds of people in Sydney sometimes when you yes. start to talk about these things here. So again, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah. We opened the... Western Plains Cultural Centre, the 10th of February 2007, right. was when Marie Bashir came along as the governor of the day yep. and officially opened the Western Plains Cultural Centre. I think we actually opened the doors late 2006, but mm. the governor couldn't make it till early 2007. Mm. And from that time there, again, this is only from memory, I'm sure this is the fourth time we've had the full finalist exhibition. It's a very exciting thing, isn't it? Like, it you is. Know, it's one of those things that, uh, as you say, living here in Dubbo, um, to have that opportunity to go along and to see this... Honestly, we're not trying to sort of smack the cities here, but we are. But it's great. It's good fun. Uh, but if you go into the city, the sort of thing, that to get into to the New South Wales Art Gallery to see it is such a difficult situation. But for us, it's literally drive downtown, park out the front, go in, pay a couple of bucks and happy days. That's and right. You get it. It's wonderful. So there's 52 finalists from last year. Mm. Only 51 are on display. Normally, we've oh. got the whole lot. And oh, this is happened? this is the last Did someone the drop run. a painting or something? <laughs> You'd be horrified, wouldn't you, if that <laughs> happened? It's meant to be that bloke. This is the, so that's two around, and this is the, the last one. So Dubbo's very lucky. We've got the, the very last viewing of the 2022. Mm. But one of the artists has got his own exhibition in Brisbane at the moment, which oh, is a okay. big deal for him to have yeah, this particular yeah. exhibition. And so he did ask permission because when you enter, you say, I'm entering my portrait mm. in this. If I do make it through as a finalist, I accept the fact that, yes, it will be on tour for a year. Mm. I can't have my painting back for a year. Mm. This particular artist asked for permission from the trustees. Oh, okay. Special Gallery. exemption. Yeah, so they gave permission because they said, well, yes, it is a pretty big deal. And you've got your own exhibition. And the fact that you have a painting that's a finalist in the mm. Archibald and then people come in to see your exhibition and they go, where's your painting? Yeah. Oh, sorry, it's down in Dubbo at the moment. So they did give them permission. So we've got 51 of the 52, that's which is awesome. still significant. Oh, absolutely. We've got the winner, the portrait by Black Douglas is right. there. So that's obviously important to have the winning yeah. prize. Were you now, impressed by it? Well, I'm impressed by all of them. I am not artistic at all. No, no I'm with you. And yes. when I look at them, and there's a couple of different styles there, I sometimes look at the ones that look like a photo. Mm-hmm. And I say, wow, look at that. Imagine being able to paint like that. Mm. And some people who are art experts say, that's nothing. That's someone who's good technically. And then there's a painting, for example, of Peter Garrett by Arndo. Right. And I look at that painting and it's got more than the required number of eyes in <laughs> your right? head. And I look at that and I go, you can't even get the number of eyes right. 
and, I, and I'm saying this with the greatest respect to Arndo. Imagine the artist saying, oh, you heathen. <laughs> but that's exactly right. People who are art experts say, look at what Arndo's done there. Look at the interpretation of Peter Garrett. Isn't that fantastic? <coughs> but again, I, and I'm not an art expert, so please yes. take this with a grain of salt, but yes. I look at the ones that look like photos and go, that's incredibly that's clever. Like that, yes. Now, people who are experts say, well, if you want a photo, go and get a camera. Mm. We're talking about artistic interpretations here. Mm. But the great thing about it is, and, and Ann Jones was there. Right. Sorry, Ann Ryan was there. I've got yes. Ann Jones, <laughs> the former Mayor of Wellington there in my mind. <laughs> she Anne, may turn up as well. Ann Ryan, she's the curator of Australian art from the Art Gallery of New South Wales. So she officially does okay. the curation yeah, for right. these exhibitions. And, and she was there and she said, one of the things that's important is that you don't expect everyone to like every painting in mm. an exhibition. Mm. You expect them to invoke emotions mm. and you want people to say I love that one and I hate that one I think that's terrible and that's, that's horrific there and look at that one over there and it stirs up emotions mm. and that's what art should do it should stir up emotions from people and, mm. and that's fantastic so go and have a look at them yeah. don't necessarily go Get I love them all up and, uh, exactly feel right. emotional and all of that yes. but I do I do enjoy looking at them and I do think there's fantastic yes. skills there and one of them for example has got this huge frame around it and mm. I said to Anne Ryan Said, so when the trustees are judging these, do they judge that frame as part of the painting? She mm. said, well, you can't not judge it because it's been created as an artwork with that frame as part of it. Mm. So, yes, that yeah, has right. been okay. part of the whole judging process. Yeah. It has to be. Right. So, yeah, look, it is fascinating. Yeah. But the other thing that's a bit interesting from this one is that the Archibald Prize was started back in 1921. Right. It was a former editor of the Bulletin, who died previous to that and left some of his fortune and said, I want an art prize. And so mm. it's gone on from there. Mm. As I said before, it's now up to $100,000 mm. in terms of first place for, for that particular prize. Mm. So you would think, well, the 2022 prize, 1921 was the first. Mm. So the 2022 prize would be the 102nd, you would think. Mm. But it's not. It's actually the hundredth winner of the prize. Okay, so my maths is normally okay. <laughs> I'm not working this one out. What happened? Exactly right. So in 1964 and in 1980, there was no winner of the Archibald. Oh, why is that? And the trustees in those two years said there is no painting here of the standard required to be classified as the winner of the Archibald Prize. Ooh, We're not awarding a winner. <laughs> Now, there's a decent sort of slap with a uh, paintbrush in someone's face for that one. And I thought exactly the same thing. I thought, mm. wow, how mm. would you feel? If if you looked at a painting and said, that one this year, I entered my painting in there, and I can see, yeah, that's a pretty good painting. I can see why that might have won. But to have the information None. go back and say, Zero. <laughs> no one is good enough You're this year. You're all ordinary. Get out. <laughs> come back next year. <laughs> so I, oh, no. I did find that fascinating. So yeah, yeah. the one that's on display there, the painting by Black Douglas, is officially the 100th winner oh, well, of the Archibald Prize. Pretty special as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, the winner. winner. Yes. Yeah, so go along. It's $12.50 to go and visit. You've got some concession prices as well that are cheaper yep. than that. But $12.50 yep. to go and look at the Archibald, all the finalists there. It's on display until the 30th of July. So okay, you've got, cool. got almost time. two months to go along and have a look at that there. Yep. But it is worthwhile looking at that. Absolutely. And then while you're there, you've got other exhibitions you can look at. You've also got the museum side as well, which mm. has got the long-term and the short-term mm. view. But even mm. in the visitor's book I noticed the other day, you've got the Reels exhibition there, which we have mentioned yes, before. Yes, yes, And there was David a visitor. And the rest. That's right. You've got a visitor there who's from Melbourne mm. who said they came from Melbourne 
because they loved the reels and they wanted to see this exhibition well, in the reels. That's pretty special. So the Art Gallery, the Western Plains yeah. Cultural Centre, it all works quite well mm. for Go and grab a visitation. coffee as well and a bit of a meal too. You've got Creo Cafe in there mm. as well, exactly right. And that's the fact that on Thursday night last week there, you held a, it was part of a workshop that uh, you attended. Now, this is uh, in regards to, or the main topic of the conversation, was the Sandy Creek Solar Farm. Um, now, this is one of the other um, wonderful farms being set up here, one of the solar farms set up in our region. Now, this one, I think, is, what's the best way to put it? It's, this is like on steroids. <laughs> this, this sucker is huge. <laughs> I, when I read through some of these figures, I couldn't believe what I just read. Uh, look, I'll let you explain to our listeners uh, what's actually going on here. So it was a workshop, and we often hold, hold workshops. Thursday nights seem to be the night for councillors to make sure they keep that free. Mm. We have our council meeting the fourth Thursday of each month. We have our committee meeting, standing committee meetings, the second Thursday. And then the other Thursdays often get taken up with workshops. So mm. this mm. particular one, I was actually in Sydney because I'd been down to Sydney on Thursday. So I was actually attending this workshop from the airport while I was waiting oh, for okay, my flight. So <laughs> came in by video conference. <laughs> Every bit of support, that's good. Yeah, that's right. So, And it's always hard when you do that from the airport because you don't want to talk too much because the people around you are going, ah, tell that guy to be quiet. We're sitting at the airport waiting. <laughs> I'm sitting here, I've got my telegraph up, I'm reading, I'm enjoying my life, got a quiet drink. Shut up. <laughs> that's right. There's this person over there annoying us all. So the Sandy Creek Solar Farm is one that's owned by LightSource BP. Now, okay. LightSource BP have got a solar farm already in this area. If you right. go from Wellington across to Mudgee, you'll go across the Mudgee Road there on the left-hand side, you'll see a 200-megawatt solar farm. Okay. And you look at that and you think, wow, that's huge. Look mm. at all those solar panels. That's incredible. Mm. This particular one is an 840-megawatt solar farm. Over four times bigger. Correct. Now, now you're talking about 1.4 million solar panels. That's the figure that got me. <laughs> I could not believe when I read that. 1.4 million solar panels. Now, who counted those? Who went around oh and God. went, let's make sure we get all these solar panels. There'll be nothing bossy you need to put those <laughs> things in. <laughs> it hasn't started. Construction <laughs> hasn't started yet. It's huge. It's still going through the planning process. Mm. This will be part of the res. Now, remember we've talked mm. about before the Central West Arana Renewal Energy Zone, yeah. the projects that we see there now, the 200 megawatt, for example, they're not technically part of the res because they're not connecting to the new power lines. This one will. This probably won't start construction until about 2025. Okay. But it gives you an idea of the sort of money that we're going to see thrown around yeah. in the res. Again, 1.4 million solar panels don't erect themselves. No, You no, need a lot of people right. there working <laughs> on that. Absolutely. This will be located, if you like, on a spot. If you drew a triangle from Dubbo to Dunedoo to Golgong and had that as a triangle, pretty much in the middle of that okay. is where this solar installation will occur. Yep. It's, if you like, about 25 kilometres southwest of Dunedoo, 30 kilometres northwest of Golgong. Mm. And... Uh, sits probably, uh, it's almost actually spot on 50-50 in the Warrenbungle Shire Council local government area and the Dubbo Regional Council okay. local government area. Yeah. We're expecting from this presentation that we saw on Thursday night, we're expecting probably 35 years of lifetime with this installation. Right. Once you get to the end of that, mm. I would imagine that someone says, okay, our solar panels aren't as efficient as they used to be now. Mm. Maybe we're down to 80% efficiency compared to brand new. Do we just then pull them out of the ground, restore it back to how it was and move away? Or do we say, we've put all the infrastructure in, mm. let's just replace the solar panels yep. and rejuvenate those? Yep. I imagine that's what will happen. Yep. But to give you an idea, the whole res, the first size of that res when it was announced for the Central West Arana res mm -hmm. was three gigawatts. 
840 megawatts means that this is a fairly large chunk of this, but wow. already we're hearing some discussions, nothing official yet, that the three gigawatts from our particular res will probably grow to five gigawatts, yep. maybe larger, but certainly probably around that five gigawatt size. So to put that into layman's terms for the, the average Joe Blow out there like me, how does that actually work then from the point of view of how many cities would you be able to light? How many people would be able to benefit from that? So the three gigawatt mm. solar or the th- the res there at three gigawatts, approximately that will do 47% of the households in this state or approximately would do 10% of all the power used by this state. That's amazing. So that's all going to be provided by this res around the Bedangra, Wellington area, but obviously it goes across to a couple of other LGAs as well. Now, one of the things we've talked about before is that a solar farm doesn't have any compulsory process. Is there any financial uh, opportunities for us here? Obviously employment, so there'll be approximately full uh, 10 full-time operational jobs created from this, mm. but during construction, as you can imagine, 1.4 million solar panels, mm. there'll be hundreds of people employed in that mm. process. Mm. So that's one thing, but the community benefit funds or ways that we get money coming back into the community in cold, hard cash, as we talked about before, if it's a wind farm, mm. it's compulsory to have that process in place. A solar farm, eh, not so much. Mm. Don't understand why. I talk to everyone that cares. Listen to me about it. Mm. I want that to change. In this particular case, Lightsource BP have said, yes, we'll happily sit down with council or the councils involved, the two councils involved, and go through and have a discussion around a voluntary planning agreement and have some funds put aside there and have those delivered to the community every year. Is that enforceable? Well, this is the problem, isn't it? Mm. Lots of solar farms say, happy to have discussions. Mm. They say, we'll talk to councils about that, talk to the local area about that. And they do talk about it. Mm. But when it comes time to sign on the dotted mm. line and hand over some cold hard Words cash... Words are good, actions are better. Mm, that's mm. right. So, again, I did bring that up at the meeting on Thursday night and said, we hear from solar farm operators sometimes that they're willing to do something but it never seems to eventuate. Mm. Can you tell us you'll definitely do it? Oh, definitely. We'll definitely have those discussions with you. I've got the you. contract here. Can you sign here for us, yeah. please? And that's that's the problem. So yes. we'll keep working with them. They're, they're quite good to have discussions with, mm. but let's see what happens in terms of that mm. final outcome. But it's still, again, you'll still see employment. You'll still see people living in the area. You'll still see money coming into the area from a whole range of things. And you'll see roads upgraded because you have to have the roads to a certain standard Mm. for all these things to occur in the first place. So Mm. there will be benefits. My objective is to get those long-term benefits. Now, last week you heard me talk about the REAC, the Renewables Education and Activity Centre. And I'm keen to talk to companies like Energy Co, for example, to see if we can deliver something. What's interesting from Lightsource BP is they're already talking about doing some form of industry training and education centre that will involve solar, which is their focus. In in this region here where they're talking about. Absolutely right, very close to Wellington. Okay, cool. And they're trying to get on board the network operator, some wind farm operators, and do this industry education because mm. they see that as being good for the region as well. I got very excited when I started hearing all this. maybe your idea and their idea sort of linking somehow together here? Absolutely spot on. Why not have the industry education and the public education? Because yeah. you'd use some of the same assets for that. They're talking about having a mini tower to do working oh. with height certification, for example. Sounds like a conversation we had last week. Oh, it does. Yeah. So, yes, I got very excited. I've already talked to them a bit further after the workshop about how can you tie in this idea for long-term visitation, yep. long-term education, and your short-term needs for mm. industry education. Mm. Nothing definite out of that, mm. obviously, at this stage, but certainly we're working, or I am working towards yeah, making terrific. sure we get long-term benefits there. So well, I like that. It's, it's happening. It's all happening there. The people that say, let's stop this happening, you're not going to do that. No. Let's see how we can gain benefits from it. Absolutely. Absolutely.
Again, during the week there, Matt, uh, you had a local government procurement dinner with execs and sponsors. Um, procurement. So I suppose being the English teacher coming out of me here, I'm thinking the fact this is to procure, to uh, to have, to, to gain, to... Um, so is this a group that council uses to uh, to procure, to gain... Um, it's like almost like a middleman operation, say for, I know, bitumen, concrete, cement, whatever. So you've got local government New South Wales is the peak body for local governments across the state. Right. And most councils across the state are members of local government New South Wales. Yep. Over the years, local government New South Wales has identified various business units that would be beneficial to local government in the state. Mm-hmm. One of those is local government procurement. So they've okay. created... a Organization. So that's actual title, isn't it? Local government procurement is like an agency. It's a group. It's like it's like a, a, a business mm. that sits underneath local government New South Wales. Local government New mm. South Wales owns it, yep. but there's an independent board. That board is appointed by local government New South Wales, but they yep. run that as a business. They probably employ forty staff. Okay, and then what they do with that? A couple of things. The first thing, your logic for procurement and the word to procure, mm. absolutely that makes sense. So that's exactly what it's all about. You can use local government procurement to do contracts for procuring goods. But mm-hmm. the, the advantage is that if you go out, take bitumen that you mentioned, mm. you go out and want to buy a certain amount of bitumen that you might need for the year, you might go out with a contract, you might go out for a tender, and you're one council. Mm. So you might require a certain amount of bitumen. And you'll find suppliers of bitumen who will give you a reasonable price based on mm. your level of supply or, or level of demand that you might need. But if you go to local government procurement, they might have gone out and already secured a contract that might be the amount of bitumen they might need for all the councils or all the participating mm. councils across so the state. So you assume then their buying power will be stronger. Correct. Now, you pay, or we don't pay, but the process has that the way the business runs, local government procurement runs, is that they take 1% of these contracts. So they yep. might go out and say, w- rather than 100 councils mm. needing one tonne of bitumen, yep. And they might go out and say, we need, and so then you've got 100 individual contracts, we need 100 tonnes of bitumen, mm. Mm. and let's go out and get the best price we possibly can for that. Mm. And I reckon that price would be better mm. to whoever is successful in that than the 100 individual councils yes, getting yes. one tonne each. Yes. So then they take their 1% commission, if you like, off yep. that, and yep. then they can supply that bitumen to various councils that might come along to mm. them. There's actually a process that you can utilise where you don't need to go to tender in the traditional way, so it can actually make it quicker. Local government procurement also does a basis where they'll do consultancy work, if you call it that, where Mm. they'll actually organise an entire tender for you as well. So if you don't have the staff within your organisation to go through and organise a tender, you can actually contract out on a fee-for-service basis to LGP to say, can you please run this tender for us mm. so that we can then take the tender documentation back to our councillors for them to say, yes, make a decision mm. on that. Yeah. So they run a number of services for local government. And what they had in Dubbo during the week was, yes, I went to dinner with the various execs mm. and some of the sponsors, but the next day after that dinner, they also had a mini conference, seminar, whatever you might want to call it. And this is a bit of the bread and butter for Dubbo. Mm. There were probably 40 people at the seminar. I went along in the morning and welcomed them all to Dubbo. Mm officially open the seminar and, and let them have their discussions throughout the day. But that sort of event where you've got 40 people attending or 50 or 100, there's so many of those events that mm. I certainly see in Dubbo and I don't see all of them. Yep. These are the bread and butter. We've got good accommodation in Dubbo. We've got lots of places you can hold that. This particular one was held in the giraffe room at the, oh, ju- so at, not the, jail, the, at the zoo. So is that 
Where's that located? Is that near the Savannah Room or? Not quite. As you come into the zoo, just on the left-hand side, there's a little building there that holds about 40 or 50 people. There you go. I didn't even know that. Smaller than the Savannah Room. Yep. Not quite the same view as the Savannah Room. But again, we've got the zoo there. And I know they had a lunchtime safari event organised as part of their uh, visit to the zoo. So it makes it attractive for people to come along. Mm. And I talked to a few people there before the conference actually started and they said they haven't been to Dubbo. There was one mm. person from Bathurst, for example, said, we haven't been to Dubbo for years. So we tend to go towards Sydney more so than out west. But gee, it's mm. great to be in Dubbo and the place mm. is pumping and it's really looking good and all the rest of it. And warmer than Bathurst, they commented as well, which is good. <laughs> but Very easy to do this time of year. Y- and you never know what you're going to get out of that. So that was basically a range of employees from mm. various councils. We had some of our staff there, for example, just talking about procurement and the challenges. Mm. I mean, one of the challenges is getting hold of the product. We talk to developers at the moment, just getting stormwater pipes for a development that might be being built, maybe a 12-month delay. Yeah, right. And one of the things, I talked to the CEO, Luke, uh, at one stage there and just talked to him about some of his challenges. One mm. of his challenges is being able to get supply. When you go along as an individual council and we say, again, use the bitumen, we need a mm. tonne of bitumen, mm. then, well, sure, but it's a bit hard to get bitumen at the moment, so mm. you might have to wait six months for that. Mm. But local government procurement, because they're ordering 100 tonnes, yep. then the suppliers are more likely to make sure that their supply is consistent. The big, the big payers first, Correct. I suppose. Yes, yeah, exactly yes. right. So that is one of the challenges, though, without a doubt. Luke mm. said that, that a real challenge for them is making sure they can deliver on what the local government okay. sector needs. Yep. More so than the individual council. So that's a challenge. But you you never know what you're going to find out. And one of the conversations I had was Mm. with a sponsor of this particular event was Origin Energy. Right. And there was an exec from Melbourne that had flown up for this particular event. And at the dinner, I sat down beside this particular lady and chatted about a few different things. And she said, now, I've heard that Dabo's going quite well in the adoption of EVs. And I've actually heard this council is very progressive in the adoption of EVs, not talked about that a little bit. Yes. She said, well, you might be interested in a new plan from Origin. I said, do tell. I'm mm. always happy mm. to hear what, mm. what's happening. And they've got now a specific EV plan. Right. And I thought, well, what's an EV plan look yeah, like? Yeah, what, yeah. What, what have you done in your electricity pricing that possibly could benefit EV mm. owners? So if you've got an EV, you can apply for this plan. So mm. it's not just handed out to anyone. You've actually got to prove yeah, right. that you've prove got... Prove the fact you've got an EV. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. And uh, I think there's a couple of conditions around that, but mm. I'll let people go and look at them themselves. But if you then are approved, you get free electricity, well, not cheap, good. Yeah. free electricity right. between 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. every day of the week. Just say that again. So, <laughs> I know. So if you've got an EV and you go to Origin Energy and prove the fact you've got an EV, you can get free electricity from 10 to 3 during the day. And that's not just to use for your EV. That's for everything. So if you want to run your washing machine yeah. at that time or your dishwasher yeah, your or your dryer. Or whatever you want to get there. Pool, yeah, those, those major suckers of electricity. That's right. Yeah. So you get free electricity. Now, the logic here is that just in the same way that off-peak electricity was created mm. because you had large coal-fired power stations and you mm. couldn't just turn them off at the middle of the night when you mm. didn't need so much power. So a creation of off-peak power was designed and then you had various things that used off-peak power mm. because they wanted to keep the coal-fired yep. power stations Makes running sense. overnight. It's the same logic here in that they've got too much power in the middle of the day. Uh, the solar, with all the solar. Yes. Exactly right. So many people have got solar and Dubbo's a great adopter of yeah, rooftop yeah. solar. We, yeah, we, yeah. At one stage, we were the highest per capita connector in the oh, nation. Wow. Okay. So they've got too much power in the middle of the day. So what do they do? They say, well, we'll give it away during the middle of the day if 
we can get some more clients they, out of it. They, they advertising this? I haven't even heard this out there It's yet. a very new plan. So right. this particular exec told me that, yes, it's a brand new plan. You might see it advertised shortly. Yep. But you can go on their website now and you can go and apply yeah. for this plan straight away. Wow. So plug your EV in, yeah. in the middle of the day. Yeah. Fantastic. But also run your other appliances. Do everything else as well. Yeah. If you're doing some work from home, which some people do now, mm. then the day you work from home, use that as a day you plug in your EV. But mm. even on weekends, yeah. it's seven days a week. So it's not just Monday to Friday. No. It's Saturday and Sunday as well. Yeah. I feel like right. I'm plugging Origin Energy here and I'm doing a little <laughs> sales advert for it. But this is fantastic news. Yeah, it, yeah. it does feel a bit like a, a bit of a plug for Origin. Yeah. But again, it's one of those things when I say to someone, I've got to go and attend a dinner tonight, I've got mm. to go to a function, whatever it might be, people say, well, how does that benefit Dubbo? Mm. And I don't always know that it does. It's one of those things that you're making contacts, you're making connections, mm. you're having conversations. But straight away I went, wow, yeah. I didn't know about this and I would have known about this except – I might have seen it in an ad in a few yeah. months' time, but sitting down having it's dinner. The little opportunistic sort of meetings that sort of pop up like this. Yeah, and, yeah. and you don't know what you don't know. No, so you, right. you don't know it. these things yeah. until you have those conversations. Mm. But anyway, Logam Procurement is a, a function or a facility that we use in our council. Lots of councils across the state use mm. it. Good to see functions in Dubbo, but yep. also interesting to see what other conversations yeah, that's occur. so true. Now, I know it's Matt, uh, you're back down in Sydney again for your regular, almost seems like a weekly sort of thing these days, down there catching up with these ministers. And I noticed that uh, during the week you managed to catch up with a, a few more ministers. You went to the uh, Office of the Premier, uh, which is one of the officers there, one of the groups. And, of course, you met with uh, the Honourable Rose Jackson and uh, Tara Moriarty. Mm. You've been busy. <laughs> Very busy. Very busy. Talk and me through it. How'd it all go? Office of the Premier, so we met with some of the staff, three of the staff there from the Premier's office. Chris Minns wasn't available, unfortunately, but this was really... Have you met Chris Minns yet? I had met Chris Minns when he was shadow... Okay. Well, sorry, leader of the opposition. Mm. He came along to a regional city's New South Wales meeting and, and he actually presented quite well and good. had a, a good discussion with him after that meeting. So he, he seems like a down-to-earth, grounded individual and really focused on how he can deliver for the state. Haven't met with him as Premier yet, but certainly mm. will meet with him as Premier. Yep. And one of the discussions, or the main discussion for this particular meeting with his office mm. was around regional cities in New South Wales. We've had a memorandum of understanding that we've signed in the past with the past government. Now, technically, that MOU runs out on the 30th of June this year. Right. I did say to his staff that, you could almost argue that it's run out because it's a change of government, mm, mm. even though, yes, that was signed on behalf of the government. Mm. But I'm pretty keen to make sure we get a new MOU signed. Yep. And part of that really is making sure the new government is on board with regional cities in New South Wales and understanding yep. the place that they can play in helping the government and helping regional cities. Mm. So that was the main part of that discussion. Yep. We said, we'll send you Did through. Did it go all right, the discussions? You Fantastic. Could. Again, you're talking to the staff there. We need... Chris Mint, or it might be Tara Moriarty mm. who signs off on that as the relevant minister, but mm. essentially we left that to the government. Mm. We'll send you a copy of the latest MOU, see if you want any changes made, but we want to get that signed fairly soon again mm. before the end of the month would be good. So yep. that was fantastic. Good. And then the two ministers we met with, Rose Jackson, as you mentioned, and Tara Moriarty, a little bit of different focus there. With Rose, there was a bit of a double focus on water because she's mm. minister for water, mm -hmm. also minister for homelessness. We talked about a few strategies the government's got in place. One of the strategies, which I'm not quite sure how they're going to do it, but one of the strategies is to look at maybe some crown land, look at some private land, maybe look at some government land, some council-owned land, a whole range of options there to try and provide some housing and okay. then develop that housing, get some help from the state government developing that, mm. but then having a definitive number of 30% 
of that land that has to be allocated, or the housing has to be allocated to affordable and social housing. Yeah, right. Now, at this stage, it's a general statement yeah. rather than hard and fast, because mm. when I did ask Rose how you would allocate that 30% to affordable and social, is mm. that 15% and 15%? Mm. It was, well, we won't get into the detail yet, because mm. the detail hasn't been developed. Mm. And how you then allocate that affordable housing, who gets that affordable housing, mm. there was some discussion at some point that the government employees, teachers, police, nurses, that mm. type of government employee might get access to that affordable housing, but then how do you allocate that? Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. it was a general discussion, but so It's a bit of an idea sort of thing they're presenting right now. Probably more that than anything yeah. else, but... The first part is a recognition there are some people out there homeless. Mm. How do we try and address that? Housing is an issue. How do you try and address that? So yeah. that's all important because she's Minister for Housing as well. She's Minister for everything. She's yeah, got she a, a few portfolios. Right that's right, yes. But also water. Rose had some comments to make about Dubbo's water before the election, so we're keen for Rose to understand our challenges. And we talked about the tur- turbidity, and she hadn't heard about this before, but mm. there was the issue around the turbidity level when we can deliver water as safe, in inverted mm. commas, to the community. So these are like the extra substances in the water sort of thing, is it? Floaties in the water, Floaties, if you like. Okay, there we go. <laughs> and the turbidity level across the state used to be a level of one. Mm. I don't know what the units for measurement mm. of turbidity mm. are, but one was the level. So if we were treating water and delivering out the end that was below a level of one, then it was okay. There was a voluntary process that council went through several years ago where councils or water utilities across the state were set, were told that maybe 0.5 would be even safer than one. Mm. And so it was voluntary. Now, our council of the day said, sure, we'll go to a level of 0.5. And then when we had our bore water alerts last year, when we had a lot of that flooding, our turbidity level got to as high as about 0.6 very briefly. Yeah. But because it was 0.5, it was deemed that we had to go to bore water alert. Mm. If we had left it at one, it would have been safe. Mm. So I, I went through and explained that in detail to Rose, yep. but talked about the fact that there is a challenge, an ongoing challenge with climate change, that we will see the quality of the water from our river deteriorate. And so we'll have more examples where we'll be potentially mm. above 0.5. So mm. we've got to address that with our water treatment processes. So more than happy for Rose to have a discussion with us around all of that. Again, getting an understanding. And that's part of the, the job that I see for our perspective is yep. when we talk to ministers, Make sure they understand it's our challenges. It's wonderful, though, too, though. This is, this is all part of the reason why you go down to Sydney so regularly, is it so you can have these conversations with the people who can make the change happen. You know, the, the, these are, I suppose it reminds me of uh, the stage show Hamilton. You know, you've got to be in the room where it matters. If you're not in the room, well, it doesn't really matter. You've got to be in the room there with these people. And I think that's a really classic example of why it's important you continue to go down and see these people. It is about establishing these relationships and connections. Mm. And because they're all new... And for most of these people, they haven't been in government before. They've got a a lot to learn. And I can see definitely that part of our role in terms of being in council as mayors across the state is to make sure that we're feeding community information through to these ministers. Mm. Tara Moriarty was a slightly different conversation. She's Minister for Ag, Minister for Regional New South Wales and Minister for Western New South Wales. Another one of those ladies who has uh, an exceptional amount of uh, hats to her portfolio. Correct. And so that was around a discussion... Really, from our perspective of that one, it was making sure that she understands that she's got somewhere to go if she wants information about regional. And again, I suppose I'm putting briefly my hat as the chair of regional cities New South Wales Mm. on and saying, when you don't know what's happening, when you want to understand things better, use us as a resource. We think we can help Mm. your government 
and make decisions that are better for regional areas. Mm. And we think you can help us in helping to progress regional cities across the state and obviously a bit of a discussion around that MOU as well. So okay. lots to chat about there. But and, and again, I suppose people don't realise the, the time that you take up sometimes mm. in terms of what's happening. I was at that local government procurement dinner on Wednesday night. Yes. That was till whatever time, 9.30, whatever time I finished that dinner. And then the next morning I was at their function, officially opening that function. Yes. I had to go to a reconciliation week meeting then and that was a, a great function I went to there. Then on a plane down to Sydney, have these various meetings with those various ministers, sit at the airport, do a video conference for that workshop and then finally get in a plane and, and fly back Again, home. Again, I feel tired just listening to that. <laughs> That's just one day. <laughs> I'm glad you got the energy. I really do. Look here, uh, in regards to one of the things that happened during the week was um, the discussion here about the CEO performance review. Uh, so this is obviously in regards to our CEO, Murray Wood. Um, now it looks like every 12 months there's a bit of a formal review that takes place. Talk us through it. How did the review go this week for Murray? Well, there's a couple of things about this. There's only one person that councillors employ, and that's the CEO. There are 500 full-time mm-hmm. staff at council, but we only employ one. Mm-hmm. The other 499 are the responsibility of the CEO, and obviously mm-hmm. as they go through their directors and their various divisions. So it's really important that we understand the roles of the CEO mm-hmm. and also have that open communication and relationship. Now, I obviously communicate with Murray Daily, yes. Uh, my wife does complain that I probably talk to Murray more than I talk to her, <laughs> and it's probably true. <laughs> He's a lovely bloke, though. I can understand you want to talk to Murray. <laughs> He's a lovely bloke, and and we certainly have a formal sit down on a regular basis. Mm. But it's important to do a formal review as well. Now, as with any employee employer relationship, you hope that that formal review doesn't pop up and they get surprises. You mm. want to have that ongoing communication, yes. but. Every 12 months, so essentially the employment scenario started around the November time frame. So mm. every November we do a formal review where mm. we do have myself as the mayor, we have the deputy mayor, and then the three chairs of the three standing committee meeting, or three standing committees, mm. we have a formal review. Now in that we have an independent person sitting in the room. Now I talked before about local government procurement being a business of local government New South Wales. Yes. There's another business called Local Government Employment Solutions, which is, again, another business of Local Government New South Wales, realising that there are lots of opportunities there for employment solutions, i.e. going out and finding new staff, new directors, new CEOs, doing the formal reviews, etc. So we sit down with Local Government Employment Solutions with those five people around the November timeframe each year. But at about the halfway mark during those 12-month reviews, Mm. so around the May-June timeframe, we typically do a smaller review where we involve local government employment solutions and myself and the CEO, and we sit down and just go through that review. It's still formal, mm. but we don't have all those other people from yep. the council there. Is it mainly about uh, posing questions of areas of focus, or what's what's the, the main focus there? It's looking at the KPIs that we've set as a council and just seeing how the council is performing and how Murray's performing against those KPIs. Mm. And it's a good opportunity just to sit down and talk about how things are progressing from both sides. So mm. Murray, how are things progressing from your side? How's the communication going with councillors, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. And from my say, side, how are things going? And the, the really tough part for anyone in a position such as Murray mm. is that your well, Murray's relying on the performance of his staff for his performance review. Mm. So we can say, Mm. Murray, this project that we're working on, why is it falling behind schedule? That's reflecting poorly on you. 
he can have it's all a bit the excuses. Like a coach of a football team, isn't it? Really, a bit yeah. like that. He yeah. can have all the excuses in the world about why it's not mm. going so well. The staff that might be working on that, or there mm. might be someone that's on leave, or whatever it might be. Yep. But ultimately, it reflects on yes. that particular person. Yep. Yep. So that's the challenge for Murray. But again, Murray's doing a good job. Mm. Where certainly, from my point of view, from the performance review that I did, certainly happy with how he's performing against the KPIs, and certainly at the last formal review with all the various councils involved there and then back to the council meeting certainly uh, a very good report back from those councillors there but again it's important to keep doing those reviews and keep looking at how things are progressing and how we can improve that's always the ultimate aim that's exactly right I noticed here the fact that uh, you got the chance to uh, meet with uh, Beryl Mortimer during which she's the president of the Dubbo Squash Club had a bit of a discussion here about the squash facilities in Dubbo. Now, I remember as a kid, um, and you're probably the same way, Matt, that uh, we seemed to have had a lot of squash courts growing up as kids, didn't we? Yeah, I love squash. I used to play a lot of squash it was a wonderful as sport, a kid. Wasn't and it? Yeah, and yeah. even after that, I remember playing my brother-in-law over in Perth one time. We were there, and we oh, it's going to have a game of squash. Yes, so it was a, a yes. common thing that you do, and it was cheap. <laughs> it was fairly easy to get a racket maybe not buy a racket. You That's can right, yes. Yeah. Hire one from somewhere, you could get a racket. Go on so a Saturday afternoon with your mates and have a game of squash. And not like tennis where you keep losing balls over no. the, the outside <laughs> fence. You That's didn't right. lose the ball too often in a squash court because yes. it wasn't very far for it to go. Now, and I think you're right, there was Dubbo Sports World, which is now Ben Fernie Flower Mills, yes. and I don't remember exactly, but they told me that the members of the Dubbo Squash Club that I met with said that there were probably about 15 courts. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Like, that's I, a lot of courts. That's a lot of courts. And I remember when you told me about this, and I had to sort of stop and think, were there 15 courts? And then I had a bit of a think. I thought, you know, you're probably right. Yeah, and you'd, we'd play at school. That was one of the sports yes, we'd, we'd choose right. when we tick the boxes there. And you'd go down, and it was unusual not to hear a bunch of noise from all these different courts with people yes, playing squash. Yep, the squeaky sound of the sneakers. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Dunlop volleys. And then the there were eight courts at the RSL club as well. Yes, And they used to have yeah. the coin slots. And I actually found one of them. I found, I stuck a photo up on social media right. of one of the old coin slots yes, there yes, at yes. the RSL club where you put it in and you could put up to four 20 cent coins oh, in. Geez, you must have been rich. And I hey? don't, well, no, I, I didn't say <laughs> I did. I said you could, you <laughs> could. <laughs> but the, I don't know how long that got you for, but I remember you'd put them in and you'd have it yes. tick away and then you'd suddenly be playing in the dark. That's so right, yeah. No, and stop and match point and it all suddenly go dark and then you get right, the ball yeah. and smack your mate with it or something. So one of the concerns from the squash club was that we had mm. about, and mm. I don't know it's absolutely accurate, but about 23 courts. Mm. And that's back around the 80s, maybe 90s. And yes. we had, I think it was Peter Deacon who owned a sports world. Yeah, it was, it was Peter someone, wasn't it? That's yeah, right, yeah, very strong advocate. Yes. And he had tournaments where he'd, he'd bring out the world team from Pakistan and that's we'd have right, yes. Jeff Hunt come along. That's right, I mean, yeah, that was yeah. a big name in that, that big exhibition match too, yeah, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. So again, with anything like this, you need people that are passionate and really mm. drive it. So he did that, definitely. Mm. And it really put double on the map for squash and really mm. lots of people like you and I are going, oh, let's go and play squash. Absolutely. We're now down to... Two squash courts yeah, in Dubbo. It's a bit sad, From really. a peak of 23 down to two. Yeah. Now, obviously, that's a concern for the Dubbo Squash Club. Mm. Unfortunately, it does come back to numbers. So mm. I gave them a few strategies to work with. I just don't think council's got any money to go and build squash courts. Mm. And you look at the participation levels, and again, mm. with only two squash courts there, obviously... Did you have some figures there? you know what's happened with squash? Or? Well, they didn't have any specific figures around... They, they told me how many turned up to their competition, but I did a bit of research while we were sitting there talking. Mm. They said the number of players of squash, regular players in squash in Australia back in its heyday around mm. the 80s and 90s 
about a million people regularly played yeah, squash. Yeah, right. Okay. Which you think about the Australian population back in the 80s. It's Correct. less than it was today, or is today. Yeah, so that's not it's big bad. big numbers. Mm. When you look at today, there are a couple of different sites that I found, but probably 100,000, maybe 150,000 oh, regular players. So it has dropped. It's percent isn't it, what yeah. it was. Mm. And, and I didn't know why, but I asked the Double Squash Club if they had any idea why. But remember there used to be a bit of publicity saying, don't play squash, you'll have a heart attack. Get out there on the squash court because maybe... Yeah. Well, there was a couple of examples of guys Correct. dropping dead playing yeah, squash. Yeah, that's right. It was a very Which, one. if they dropped dead playing squash, if they went for a run oh, or they played that's tennis... Right. The same thing would probably happen. They're probably putting stress on their heart. Yep. I don't want to give medical advice here, but they're probably putting <laughs> no, stress on their heart. Right, absolutely. And their body wasn't ready for it. Yeah, so I don't think it was the squash that was the issue. It was the, the exercise that obviously created the issue. And I'm not saying don't do exercise, but these yeah. poor guys, for those reasons. That's doing right. some exercise at a high intensity level yes. and then going, oh, my body's not ready for it, and then collapsing and obviously mm. dying. So maybe that was part of it. Mm. I don't really know exactly why, but I'm happy to support a movement for more squash courts in Dubbo. But so they probably, want more squash courts? They need the more squash courts. They can't okay. play competitions. They can't, well, they can play competitions, but only small ones. Mm. They can't attract larger competitions here. And for people, you know, if you and mm. I decide this afternoon, let's go and have a bit of a hit of squash, mm. then you're probably going to struggle to get on a court because there's only two. But mm. again, not many people are playing it, so maybe we could get on is, a court. Is, is this something, though, that the, the squash um, society here needs to probably take up more with the current facilitators of squash? Well, they could probably talk to the RSL club mm. and say, can we have more courts? But obviously the RSL club has got to cater to what their members need as well. Mm. It's one of those things is that... Is it a business decision, that? Well, it probably is a business decision from the RSL club, but it's one of those things, I think, that really you just need to drive with some passion, get more mm. people involved. And then if the demand is there with enough people playing, mm. that might be when you'll finally get someone, maybe a private person, maybe with PCYC, and they have talked to the PCYC about having squash as part of that new facility, the new sports facility. Mm. That'll probably be some time down the track before that happens. But then keep in mind, you've got the indoor cricket centre up on Sheraton Road mm. that probably the basketball courts there will be used less once the PCY facility is built. Maybe that's an opportunity to build yeah, squash yeah. courts there. But again, whatever you do, you need people. Well, so you uh, need to generate some interest. And I suppose in regards to that, is there anything that the council can do in regards to this to uh, assist the, the squash group? It's probably something that we've talked about it before where some organisations have received a $100,000 interest-free loan yep. from council, for example, to help. If, for example, they wanted to take the old tennis courts on Elston Park, just on the side of Elston Park, if they said, let's build a squash facility there, they'd need to get some funding from somewhere. Mm. That's council land. That'd be something I think council would be open to that idea. Yeah. But again, it all comes down to numbers. It comes mm. down to users. How many people can you get there? No council or government is going to support something where you just don't have enough people yes. using the facility. So yeah. I suppose it's up to them to generate interest and generate the numbers in it is, mm. is the bottom line from that perspective. Sounds about right. Now you and I were uh, down there this morning uh, strutting our stuff in the park. Right? It was actually quite nice there. We're sort of heading off. We're doing our little thing this week. Um, weather's been quite... Uh, conducive to a bit more of a run, but I do notice the fact that uh, down there on the Lady Cutler South Oval, where the, the banks have uh, been eroded away and there's uh, currently the, the barriers are up, it looks as though the fact that Council is finally going to make some movement here to um, to actually to uh, readjust that walkway. Is that all about to happen this week? That's about to happen on the 5th of June, Monday the 5th of June that will start. Happy days, that's it. So we've got a temporary realignment there at the moment where we've basically got it 
cordoned off where you shouldn't run on the path. Some people tend to move those. Yes, little, those, those barriers seem to be more of a, an option for some people, yes. Some people, that's right. Yes. But hopefully people take notice of those. But we're actually going to reconstruct the path and redo the lighting there. Oh, good. And that all starts on Monday so that then that will be the way you walk around. Now, that'll take about two weeks for that construction. Okay. So during that time, it'll be a bit hard to get past there. Yep. And I've actually spoken to the parkrun organisers and they're going to create some other alternative route for that one or two weeks that you won't be able to run there for park run. And I did have to declare a conflict of interest in this ad council when we were going forward with this, in particular this with the reconstruction. Yes, yes. Where's your conflict of interest on this one? Well, I, I did say that at the moment on the gravel path, yes. you're running on that for park run. And the new area that will divert around that area to basically help make sure that that riverbank doesn't collapse further will be concrete. And I think you'll probably run a bit faster on concrete rather than gravel. So I had to declare a conflict of interest. Why did I know that was going that way? (laughs) That I might actually take one or two seconds off my park run time by running on concrete. So I've got to be careful that I'm making... Well, see, for a bloke like you, take a couple of seconds off your park run time will actually probably make a difference. (laughs) Take a couple of seconds off my park run time is like, whatever. A a couple of seconds, a couple of seconds. I don't care what time you're running. It's always a couple of seconds. But yeah, so I had to declare that I'm not making council decisions to put a concrete path in just to help my park run time. <laughs> if it helps the park run time as well, That's I'm happy with that. <laughs> well, mate, it's that time of the week. It's been a busy little, uh, little session again today. Got through a lot, so uh, it's time for your limerick of the week. What have you got for us this week? The significant event of the week is obviously the opening of the Archibald, so of I can't get past that. So the limerick reflects on that this week. In the heart of Dubbo's art scene... The Archibald finalists do convene with brush, paint and flair showing talents so rare, an art spectacle like none ever seen. Oh, now, mate, you may not be able to sort of pick up a paintbrush and do much with it, but you can certainly have that talent with a wordsmith. Well done. Well, folks, that, of course, wraps up for a, another episode of Straight from the Mayor's Mouth. Until next week, everyone, you guys take care. Straight from the Mayor's Mouth with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council.